Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Just The Facts. I'm Alex Zane. How are you? I hope you're well. So I have a little bit of an apology to make at the start of episode two. Yes, episode two, and we're already in the business of apologies. I'll get to it in just a moment. First of all, though, if you haven't followed us on social media yet, please do so. We are at JTF Pod on Twitter and Instagram. There's loads of extras on there. And also, congratulations are in order to our Instagram follower, existential meatball existential meatball was the first and only correct guess for our guest this week based on the clues we put up so congratulations existential meatball also if you haven't done so please do subscribe to us on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and if you can do please leave us a rating and review it really does help us out so thank you in advance for that The thing I forgot to mention last week, no, this isn't the apology yet. The thing I forgot to mention last week is that we have a YouTube channel. So if you prefer to watch your interviews rather than listen to them, then you can do so on our YouTube channel, Just The Facts with Alex Zane. Subscribe on there. The video interview comes out shortly after the podcast. Right then, the apology. So... I screwed up the audio this week. I was recording the show remotely and I should have hardwired my laptop and I forgot to hardwire my laptop. So the Wi-Fi signal wasn't great. It's not the best audio is the bottom line. I've had a fiddle, I've had a play and I've done as much as I can. But I guess I'm just telling you so that you know that I know that you know. Good. So a fascinating start to this week's show uh, about hardwiring laptops and Wi-Fi signals. It gets better from here because my guest today is absolutely brilliant. We talked about everything from him being handpicked by Robert Zemeckis straight out of film school to direct Monster House. We talked about him co-writing Ghostbusters Afterlife with Jason Reitman. We talked a lot about dogs. He is the wonderful writer and director. Gil Keenan. Gil. Hey, Alex. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. It's really, um, really good to have you on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I love that Whippet portrait oh, uh, over your shoulder. Thank you very much. That is actually, that's my dog, Simon. 
Oh, good job. That's great. Um, uh, uh, is he, in fact, a whippet? He is. Um, if you ever meet him, he's a very big whippet. Like, I spend most of oh. my time when I meet people and they're like, oh, lovely, yeah. lovely greyhound. I'm like, right. yeah, no, he's a, he's a whippet. He was meant to be a lot smaller, but there you go, you know, steroids. Uh, that's, that, 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 that's fantastic. They're such great dogs. We had one, um, a, a sort of lurchery whippet um, a while back, and um, uh, he was one of the most affectionate like weird dogs, uh, like, you know, they give hugs and really sweet. Crazy, um, isn't it? Anyway, nice to, uh, nice to hear about him. And where are you in, uh, in England? I'm in, I'm in London. Are you in London as well at the moment? I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Hampstead. What part of town are you in? Literally down the road. Uh, I'm in Highgate. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Oh, well, we could have just done this strolling <laughs> the heath. I take my dogs to the heave twice a day. So, um, uh, I mean, chances are we'll just meet each other randomly. Now I'll know what to look for. Simon, <laughs> is, he, is, is, is he a black, uh, black whippet? He's, they call them blue, but he's gray. So it's that, oh, sort beautiful. Of, yeah, all gray color. Yeah. What have you got then? I've got, they're sleeping. Otherwise I would bring them in. I've got a border collie and a big sort of, he sort of looks like a small wolf, Irish wolfhound, oh, but wow. not like, Something like that. Like uh, he's a mutt. he's a mutt. We just did a DNA test actually, um, and he's a mixture of thirty different dogs. So <laughs> he's like basically like a, a pound pound cocktail, you know. Wow. Um, but um, anyway, um, cool. Nice yeah. to uh, nice to hear that you're nearby. I can yeah. just yell loud. Yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> well, that'd be nice. Yeah. I mean, board collies, man. They take. There are quite. There is a lot of energy. That's a lot of energy in one dog. Yeah. Yeah. I have to take her. I mean, she she's she's settling in. Poor poor sweet girl. She's. I mean, she's five or six now. So she's not as crazy as she was. She's incredible. She's such a great dog. But um, the two proper walks in the heat a day keep her in the sweet spot where she doesn't need more energy i mean um uh, i i have to say like i've been here now a year um and we'll get into that i'm sure in the conversation yeah but um the, just the the quality of life of having the heath mm. as the center of my orbit mm. has been like a total game changer it's yeah. It's magic. Yeah. Did you grow up here? I've been in Highgate for about 20 years. So I literally, yeah, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about, especially with the yeah. whole, everything that's happened, the lockdown and everything, just having that space, especially with the dog. But anyway, like even just getting out of the house and being able to walk around yeah. the park has been, you know, like you say, a game changer. Really good. So are you, so you've been here a year because obviously like you've been in LA for a long time. So are you based here now? Is this your heart? Do you call this home? I mean, I, yeah, my, my London journey is, it has like an arc throughout my life. So I've kind of, um, I've identified as, uh, I've always identified as London holding an important place in my life. I was born here um, and I lived here until I was almost three. Um, and then my grandparents were here uh, on one side of my family for, for all of their uh uh, until they died, basically, <laughs> not not their whole life, but for all of my life until they died. And um, uh, so there was always this like pretty important role that the city played. I also, for whatever reason, almost all of the work that I've done has had some London uh, uh, aspect to it. So I've, I've always also had a bit of uh, work orbit in London. Um, and then a boy called Christmas changed that equation dramatically because it, for all intents and purposes, it's a British film. Mm. Um, and uh, in, in that the uh, producers, the mounting of the production, uh, a, 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 most of the crew and a big part of the, the cast uh, were all from here. This is where pre-production happened, where writing happened. So when that film started up, I basically had to reshift my energy from Los Angeles to London on a more permanent basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, so I was here on and off. I still have a home in Los Angeles and Hollywood where I, and I, I, I still have a lot of affection for that city. It's still properly my home mm. but um i don't feel like i'm gonna leave london anytime soon i've moved here with my family and my dogs i brought them over from la and um 
I, you know, it, I've had a very weird year because I started out in Los Angeles. Um, so I was in Los Angeles for the first chunk of lockdown um, from March until July, and then moved here to London to finish A Boy Called Christmas um, in uh, at the end of July. Um, and uh, so I've kind of gotten a taste of both countries' version of the pandemic. Um, and uh, so I, it's a long answer to your question, but the, I guess the, the, the basic answer is that yes, London is home um, and that I'm, uh, but also Los Angeles is home. <laughs> Your dog was lucky though. I mean, Los Angeles, I, I've, I've obviously spent a bit of time there, mm. but in terms of like, you know, not to make it an entirely dog-based chat, but no, no, please. You know, this conversation just got a whole lot more interesting for me. So yeah, <laughs> no, but I definitely mean, make it dog. Because you've got the dog parks, and then I guess you've got the the, the, the hills and like Griffith Observatory and all that. So there are places yeah. to take them. But I mean, I mean, they must have sort of walked onto that heath and gone, "Thank you, Gil. This is." It was a very. I mean, you know what? You you um, I I I remember the moment so clearly. Uh, because it was a very long and stressful journey. M moving during a pandemic is difficult mm. without dogs, but if you add two dogs who have never traveled before, oh, wow. it becomes an extraordinary challenge. I was so stressed out on the flight over. Um, they came over a few hours later because they have to go through some checks at Heathrow. Anyway, they, they showed up in our neighborhood in the same crate that we put them in in, in front of our house in Los Angeles. They came out sort of looked around, sniffed the air. I took them straight to the heath to sort of stretch their legs. And there was that moment where they both looked at me like, what is this? <laughs> like this, this, this exists? I think they probably were just attacked by tree smell, you know, in the middle of the summer when everything's so green. I think it was like a profound moment. I'll never forget the look that they gave me. Um, anyway, it's, it's really cool. I'm sure at some point in their journey, they'll go back to Los Angeles and uh, that'll, you know, they've got all their friends and stuff there. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's an interesting, complicated um, life full of adventure. That's, um, well, that's what we're living. Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned it, A Boy Called Christmas. So the trailer for that, and it's a great trailer as well, that dropped Thanks. in um, December, uh, just, uh, just last year. Uh, uh, looking ahead though, because it's it's coming, it's, it's it's not been affected by the pandemic. The plan was always to release it twenty twenty one. You just it was That's just right. a nice little taste yeah. for people going. Okay, so I mean, you mentioned the 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 Britishness of the film, and you look at that cast. So I mean, if you're sort of trying to assemble national treasures, wow, you got Jim Broadbent, you got. <laughs> Dame yeah. Maggie Smith, uh, Sally Hawkins, you're working with Toby Jones again. I mean, and then obviously, as you said, there's um, Kristen Wiig is in there. And, yeah, uh, I mean, Stephen, Stephen Merchant plays a, yes. an outsized, outsized role as Mika the Mouse in it. And um, yeah, I mean, I am a massive fan of, um, of British popular culture. I was weirdly raised because my father grew up here. Um, and so I was raised on a sort of steady diet of uh, Monty Python, the Benny Hill, Dad's Army, hello, hello, are you being served? Like my, there was this weird thing in Los Angeles um, for expatriates uh, where they could continue to get gray market British television uh, fair, mm. drama and comedy from the from these sort of continental shops that are dotted around the city. It's this untold weird story. But um, my dad would go into into town and come back with a, a paper bag, and it would be like contraband. He would open <laughs> it up, and and they would just be selling like uh, somebody would bring over in their suitcase whatever the newest <laughs> comedies were on television here. Anyway, so the, 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 we had the, the reverse of that. We had the reverse of that where yeah. like you'd be sitting in a, like a, a, a the, the beer garden of a pub or something. I, I remember like there'd be a guy who just showed up shuffling around the tables with the latest American blockbusters, like on these like dodgy DVDs going, do you want this? And like, you know, it was illegal and I can hold my hands up and say, I never did it. But there is that moment where a guy is sort of pulling out like, you know, 
like a copy of like Jurassic Park. And you're like, this is what the <laughs> hell? And you're like, I want it, but I'm not going to do it. But yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's, uh, it definitely feels old world now, this idea that you needed a physical object that was brought over oh. from another part of the world. Yeah. It's just like, uh, it's almost quaint and uh, romantic now, the concept. But um, anyway, so the, 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 the result of it is that I, I did grow up with the work of a lot of these actors. I mean, you know, the, the Prime of Miss Jane Brody was a, a film that my parents loved and I saw a lot growing up. Um, uh, Mike Lee's films, I was, you know, were really important to me and my sort of um, filmmaking awakening. And so I knew Jim Broadbent's work and have, have, have loved his work forever. Uh, uh, Sally Hawkins, I've, you know, is, is, is a contemporary. Actually, we were born in the same uh, part of London in the same year. Wow. Um, so we both grew up in like Blackheath, um, Greenwich area. <laughs> There's a chance we played in the same sandbox as, as infants. Oh, wow. Um, and so, so um, she's one who I've just like idolized as, a, as an actor, as a contemporary actor. But, um, and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the result of it is that I've been a passionate fan of the work that these actors were, um, were uh, made their name on. And when it was time to assemble my British film, mm -hmm. it was, it was, it was, mo it was like a candy shop for me, you know, uh, and I was, I was really lucky to be able to get all of these actors and together. It, it's an incredible, I mean, the book that it's based on, I've actually read Matt Haig's book. It's, cool. um, it's, you know, it's a packed market, the, 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 the Christmas movie market. Cause I think it's, you know, like having a Christmas movie because Christmas is that time of year in the same way, like we listen to the same Christmas songs every year, people have their go-to Christmas movie. Mm. So it's like going, right, this, is this going to be a new Christmas classic? Oh, I mean, uh, you know, you don't, you don't start making something without hoping it's going to be really good. Yeah. So um, I'm basically, I'm, I'm biased. Um, I made it, uh, because I fell totally in love with the story and because like anything that I do, I was able to visualize myself seeing it as a, as, as a pure younger audience member and feeling like it was exactly the sort of experience that would move me or affect me or make me, you know, fall in love with movies. Mm. Um, and so I uh, I was able to very quickly read into it the hallmarks of the things that get me excited as a storyteller and uh, and luckily because I had great producers and in Matt Haig an incredibly uh, willing collaborator I was able to develop the story into the kind of movie that I I'm still you know, pinching myself that I got a chance to make. It was my favorite experience of making anything. Wow. I've, I've had the best, I've had the best time making this movie. That's great to hear. Cause I mean, there's one moment in the trailer and I sort of, I watched trailers and I, 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 there are, there's a bit where I'm like, yeah, I know when I see this film, that's the bit where I'm going to well up because it's a combination mm. of animals and magic and childlike wonder. And it's the bit where Blitzen takes flight in the trailer. And I was, oh, yeah. like, I was like, oh my God, I know that's going to be a hit point for me on an emotional level when I see the film. Um, well, you've read the book. So without spoiling anything, you know, Matt, Matt Haig's secret is that he has a deep well of... Uh, human experience to draw on um, as, as, as a writer in that he doesn't flinch away from the full human condition. And it's the sort of thing that actually was why I wanted to start telling stories in the first place and really why like Monster House worked for me as a, as a first film and as a, as a calling card for the sort of stories that I was interested in, in putting on screen, which is that like not taking younger audiences for granted, their ability to understand all the aspects of a story, including the darker or sadder uh, aspects. It, you know, it, as long as you can make it a good time at the movies, entertain them and give them thrills and chills, what makes an experience lasting or meaningful is when you can dip down before you swell back up. And so, um, so Matt, 
has that because of his human experiences, because of his point of view as a writer. He was able to infuse that into this book in a way that made it not like another trite bit of Christmas bauble that you take out and, you know, string up on the tree and yeah. then put away again. It felt like a story that was actually connecting on a on a on a level that felt earnest and uh, and uh, and well earned. And so I um, I was able to like really uh, sink my teeth into exactly what you said: uh, empathy through animal relationships, which is a major factor in my in my day-to-day -day life you know even if I wasn't a filmmaker that would still be one of the main modes of emotional language that I have is you know looking for a creature that I can look in the eye and uh hug if I'm so lucky that's like my you know I basically I've been known to pull a car over on the side of the road to meet a goat um and <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> So, um, so I, I had like, uh, you know, you, you spoke about the, the human actors in this film, the animal cast in this film is one of the things I'm most proud of in my, in my career. I had an insane director in a candy shop moment of the animal casting sessions where they would, you know, my wife still makes fun of me because I'm like, now that that uh that duck is too tall like you know, <laughs> i want to bring me another duck that's a little fluffier you know it's like like just crazy shit but um uh anyway i'm i'm uh, i'm i'm excited for you to see the film and for it just to to see the light of day cuz um i i'm i'm hoping that with it um there's there's like yeah like a full experience for an audience it's i mean i think you hit the nail on the head i think the one thing that sometimes uh, filmmakers can underestimate is just how savvy kids are and the minute a kid feels like they're being played to like as a kid like this is designed for you because you're a baby mm. it's like they switch off like that's what i mean i'm mm. sure it was the same for you by the sounds of things but as a kid, you wanted to watch adult movies. You wanted to learn from these movies and of sort course. of see something that was designed for you. But you mentioned Monster House, man. I mean, like, wow. It, just in case anyone doesn't know the story, it's just, it's kind of incredible. So you um, you had a short film that you did for your thesis at film school, The Lark, mm -hmm. which if no one's seen, I would suggest you watch. It's on it's on YouTube and it's 10 minutes and it's fantastic. Thanks. And I'm um, no, I genuinely loved it. I mean, like uh, just the performances that you got from those two actors, like are so just <laughs> off kilter that make it like kind of it just accentuates the weirdness. But you make this movie, and and then off the back of that movie, and this sounds like proper like you know Hollywood Dream Factory stuff. You um, Robert Zemeckis sees it and goes, "I want you to helm Monster House." It is, it is a fantasy. I mean, it, I don't think that uh, it basically went that way. And I, I, I don't know how to feel about it because I'm almost like, I feel a bit guilty that I was that lucky because it was absolutely luck that allowed me to make the leap from a student with a dream uh, to somebody who actually was able to direct a film uh, and not just any film, like a film that allowed me to do what it is that I do and uh, put my own personality and soul on screen. It's pretty shocking. Even, you know, all these years later, like uh, 18 years later, I don't know, 2003 is when I started making Monster House. So this is a long fucking time ago. <laughs> and um, I was... Um, I went to film school at UCLA and I grew up in a time where we always heard legends of students who would sort of be able to make the leap out of school into making film and thinking that that was something that happened to people in other places, other schools, other, other times, it just felt like that wasn't feasible. And so I was resigned and, and, sort of in a in a way happily so to be doing film the way I had been doing uh, storybooks, things that I've been doing personally and sort of sharing amongst my friends in the music world, which is where most of my friends were uh, in 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 those days. Um, and and sort of you know carving a line straight through in obscurity, happy obscurity. Um, uh, and and 
you know, if you watch the lark, I don't think anybody can look at it and think, oh, this person was making a commercial calling. <laughs> it, yeah. It was def it was definitely not there's nothing in that film that screams Hollywood come and get me. <laughs> um and and I think uh weirdly for me, I was really lucky because I was getting my degree in animation at a film school, which meant I had sort of access to both worlds, which is sort of what I was, why I went there. I wanted to be able to use both parts of my storytelling muscle um, or ability. Uh, and The Lark incorporated animation and live actors in a sort of animated world that, uh, and that was exactly what Zemeckis was looking for in a in a filmmaker who would come in to tell the story of Monster House. And so when he saw it, I think he was like, okay, this is somebody who understands how to use the tools. Um, and then the trick to it was making that first meeting meaningful. And in that instance, I just had a really great first meeting. And, uh, and, and a big part of that was that I read Monster House. I knew exactly, because uh, Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub had written a great script. Uh, so uh, funny. Really, Such a funny really, script, yeah. Really funny script. And, uh, but there was something in the script that wasn't like, didn't, the third act didn't quite land. Mm -hmm. It was like almost all there. Uh, but it was missing a, a, a big, there was a big uh, sort of story element that was still off the page. And I came in with a pitch um, and that pitch worked. And uh, was that and, what was what was the what did you bring to that third act then? Because oh, uh, I mean it's 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 a little more than the third act. But basically, there was no uh, Nebercracker. Uh, old man Nebercracker um, died as he does in the really? in the, in the film. But but that was that was it. Yeah, he became the he became the house, and then it was just about doing battle with the soul. Yeah, wow, because that's crazy. Because Nebercracker's like turnaround is one of the most powerful emotional beats in the whole thing. When uh, you realize thanks. that he's scared, and like, yeah. yeah. So, so I, I again, like, I think it sort of goes to this idea of the that uh, you know respecting a younger audience's ability to understand complex human emotions and behavior. It was it was basically bringing a base note to the story and and a, a bit more of a character arc to a lot more of a character arc to Nebercracker, who was allowed to have his third act. Um, and uh, and this whole idea of a wife named Constance, who uh, which which gave heart to the to the mythology and the story. That was all in that pitch. Um, and it was a wild swing. I mean, I actually think it was like insanely <laughs> naive of me to walk in and be like, hey, uh, hey, Robert Zemeckis, it's really nice to meet you. Um, here's what I think you should do with your movie that I have no right to be pitching on. Um, but yeah, that was um, so, that was the that was the meaning. I love it, and it's you know you see the Amblin logo at the start, and obviously you and I are roughly the same age, so we grew up with like you know, Explorers, Gremlins, The Goonies, mm. Monster Squad, and what what I got you know from, from Monster House, it's just it captures that feeling of American suburbia. Uh, that we grew up with in all those Amblin films of the eighties, and it just thanks, man. It's a real, it's a real nostalgia hit while being, you know, a very modern film. It's funny, you know. I, 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 there's two things that uh, makes me remember. One is that um, the the script was actually uh, was contemporary, so I and I never had a, I never had a conversation with anybody, uh, and this is a testament to how incredible my producers were on that film. I never had to justify the time that I was setting the film in. In fact, I don't think I ever had to communicate it to anybody. I just did it through the design of the of the film. And and that is actually something I, I'm just remembering now, because I feel like if in any other context, people would be like, is this a period film? Why are we making this movie that's already like a real risk for us as a studio and, and making our job harder? Because there wasn't really anything like that. That was, I, I don't think there were any films that were tapping into that time zone around when I made Monster House. Anyway, the, the, the other thing that makes me think about 
is the fact that um, I had to beg to use the Amblin logo at the beginning of the film. Wow. And, uh, and, and they had to go and dust it off from the, <laughs> from the negative and, uh, and strike a new print um, that to, that, and digitize it so that I can use it at the start of the film. That's and amazing. I knew that was really, I knew it was really important because I don't think they used the um, animated Amblin logo in anything in, in, in quite a while when I, when I made I, Monster I, House. And yet here I am going, I, you know, for certain people <laughs> of a certain age, you see that right. logo and you feel like you're home because like it's, um, yeah. it's an era. I mean, talking of um, uh... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Of the 80s, one of the great films of the 80s is obviously Ghostbusters. Um, uh, I mean, I'm going to assume you're a fan, just uh, right off the bat. (laughs) It was an important movie for me. Ghostbusters <laughs> came out um, just after I'd moved to America in 1984. Mm-hmm. And I moved uh, moved to America in the summer of 84. So it was for me like part of that experience of feeling connected to this new world. That movie was deeply meaningful. And I watched it a hundred times in my childhood. And it's, it's got that thing which I think really infuses uh, your work a lot, which is this, it's a family movie. And yeah, it's fucking terrifying. I, I mean, I remember before I even saw the film, one of my friends had the big hardback, like, comes with, like, movie book. And for whatever uh-huh. reason, whatever sick mind decided to put that book together, we were sitting in the back of the car and we opened it and it's the library ghost after transformation <laughs> on a double page staring at you. And I was like, close that terrifying but i just like obviously it was a, it's a huge hit point so the the natural question is you are you've written uh, along with jason reitman the new ghostbusters movie ghostbusters afterlife the third installment the continuation of the saga mm. that has to be a pinch yourself moment like no other i am so lucky that i've gotten a chance to play in the uh, in 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 the hallowed walls of one of my favorite storylines in movie history. Like I feel like playing with the uh, the story of these characters and in this world um, is an immense and terrifying honor. 
Um, it felt like that from the beginning. I mean, Jason and I have been friends for a very long time. We met when both of us were editing our first films. So I was about, a few, I was a few months into editing Monster House. He was a few months into editing Thank You for Smoking. Mm -hmm. And we met very, very randomly um, uh, while lacing up ice skates and <laughs> just struck up a conversation. And it began a friendship that um, is, is uh, you know, Jason's my best friend. We talk every day. Um, we've been writing together for a few years now. So this is our, this is our, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife is our fourth screenplay together, maybe third, third screenplay together. Um, uh, and so for us, it was always something that was part of the conversation. There was, uh, obviously for Jason, a, uh, a family lineage yeah. and mythology that was meaningful and uh, and and heavy and real and something we had to really talk about in terms of what it meant for him as a person as well as for us as storytellers hmm. and um i'm excited for you to see the film so that we can have a conversation about yeah. what it actually does <laughs> does as a story because um i think one of the things that clicked is that when we started talking about the world of um of ghostbusters and how to continue that story obviously you've seen the trailer so you understand that that one of the big ideas we had early on was was thinking about the uh the way to family and and lineage and and time um but also about recontextualizing like taking taking a lot of the things that we would take for granted in a Ghostbusters story, which is New York City, <laughs> and, um, and, and doing away with it as a way of embracing what's at the, what's at the soul of the story mm. um, and the, the, the core of the mythology. Um, all that stuff uh, was, uh, was foundational. We started talking about that in long drives before we ever started messing around with plotting or character. Um, and it turned out that it was a very pure writing process. We took a long time to do it right. Um, and we crafted it the way you would craft a story in the old, you know, in, in the old fashioned sense, um, really building it up from, from the ground up. And I'm really proud of the film. Um, I can't wait for audiences to see it. I, I mean, obviously, people are really excited, and it, it must be exciting for you, not, not just to have, I guess, written it, but to have written Ghostbusters Afterlife and then have your words being read by some of the original Ghostbusters as well. Like, di I've, like I've written this dialogue, and there, there's, there's Bill Murray as Peter Venkman, and he's saying my words, if, if he actually it's, does it, because he improvises so much. It's like, I got this. It's, a, it's a, well, um, I, obviously, I've got, um, I've got a, uh, you know, past experience with Bill. Yeah. I, I I love him deeply, and uh, he's he's one of those people that you just trust so much because his innate ability to communicate to an audience is, you know, so pure. Uh, but um, anyway, the 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 fact of the matter is that there's a weird out of body experience that happens when you write something to win an actor performs it. It doesn't matter who it is and in what film. It's happened to me in most of the work that I've done where after you've started working on the film, by the time an actor is actually performing the lines, you sort of disassociate from words that you put down on a piece of paper. Because if you've done the job right of building the world of the film, the sets, the costumes, the props, uh, if you've done the job of casting properly, by the time they're standing there under the lights, you don't really think of it as words that you have any ownership of anymore. It, it, it truly transfers over into something that is, um, I don't know, owned by the moment or by the characters, the actors performing them. And, uh, and I think that's maybe not something that is a universal idea that all filmmakers share. It's possible that it's just the way I approach it. Mm. I'm much more interested in the final product than in the, than in the words uh, themselves. And I'm, um, 
you know, on uh, scenes that I direct that I've written, I'm the first person to tear the dialogue up and and rethink it in the moment if it feels like there is a more honest or direct path to get to the to the drama. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually a, a it's a big part of my tool set of working with actors is not feeling um, loving the words but not being uh, a prisoner to them. Right. I mean, you mentioned the trailer. I don't mind telling you, as uh, as a, a human person, that hearing Ecto <laughs> One's siren again uh, made me well up. As as an adult, just hearing Ecto One siren in that trailer, I'm like, uh oh, here we go. It's just <laughs> it's that much of a nostalgia here. And obviously, we got um, we got a little. Uh, we've been drip fed stuff, and obviously, uh, the uh, mm. mini staple, uh, little teaser that came out. I mean, that for me, to see that, the trailer is one thing, but you see that, and that just sort of, that little scene captures the essence of of the old Ghostbusters so much in terms, it feels like there are little Easter mm. eggs in there, like the way marshmallows, it's like the eggs in Dana's apartment and the music and the, the rows of shelves is like the library and, and all these things that you, you tend to overanalyze when you're like, ah! But mm-hmm. you, what... The reaction to the mini Stay Puffs must have been nice for you. Did you know that that was going to be released pre the movie, that that was going to be used as part of the marketing? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, again, I uh, I didn't direct the film, but um, I'm very close to the process because I talk to Jason every day. So uh, he he tells me sort of what the roadmap is for the, for the marketing. Um, we... Um, we were really lucky in that the first trailer captures uh, the spirit and tone, which uh, doesn't always happen when you're when you're marketing. Um, it was pretty clear that we would be uh, teasing the mini puffs at some point, just because they're really cool and they're um, they're great in the film too. I'm excited for <laughs> I'm excited for more of that stuff. It's really. Uh, you know, uh, and as ever, when you're talking about a big film like that that has so many secrets up its sleeve, mm. I've got to be extremely oh, yeah. careful about talking about it. But I will say, from what we've been able to put out there, the important thing is communicating what is earnestly at the center of all of this, which is us as writers, as storytellers, Jason and I, keeping the flame lit like that is the the flame that sparked for us never mind the uh the weight of uh uh you know proximity to the source of the story of, of the ghostbusters legend um for both of us as audience members as pure audience members who were moved and changed by seeing ghostbusters that lit a flame in both of us that we felt like we could keep lit for uh for the people who like us shared it as as young audience members and for a new generation of audience that could feel that same scope of thrills terror wonder comedy you know movie magic so hopefully all of that stuff lives lives on in 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 our film and, and uh, you you mentioned obviously working with Bill Murray again. He did he, when he was talking about the the movie recently in an interview. He he, he was like, it's so nice to be working with my my friend Bill Cannon again. I loved uh, loved working with him on City of Ember. So he's nothing but compliments for you. City of Ember, man. Like as a movie, like I a I wish more people had seen that. And um, mm. B like as a director for you, that looked like a lot of fun in terms of being able to flex your visual muscle because some of the shots of that like the fact that you built this city like in this like like shipyard in belfast and the fact that Mm. it's real it looks like you're having so much fun in how you can move that camera around those streets thank you um city of ember was it's still the most uh painful film in my life to talk about because I'm deeply proud of the film and the work of building the film and and putting it together, but it's an extremely 
um, it's an extremely painful one to talk about because the company I made it for went bust while I was editing the film. It was a company called Fox Walden. It was like this weird Walden films, Fox hybrid. They only managed to put out a couple of films before they went bust. And we were collateral damage. It was really horrible. A lawyer took over the company while I was in post. Uh, they ended up uh, taking the movie away from me for all intents and purposes while I was editing. Just, uh, I was able to sort of claw my way back and fix a lot of the worst stuff that they'd done. Mm. But I ended up not having the same level of control on the finished product as I have on the rest of my films. Mm. And it was really heartbreaking. I'm, I'm, I'm still very proud of what the film is um, because it's an incredible cast. The world of the film is fully realized. Um, and it's, I just wish I could have done more to, uh, to keep the soul of the book alive in the finished film. Mm. Because really what ended up getting compromised and bludgeoned by the, the work that was done to the film and post was the soul. It, it works on a lot of levels, but it's missing that uh, the undercurrent of heart and emotion that I'd worked really hard to build into the in, into my collaboration with the um, with uh, with the screenwriter, and it, that I was trying to keep going from the novel. Um, that I'd worked really hard with my incredible cast to to, to shoot. So, um, and a big part of that is the score. My, my score was, uh, you know, I, I'd had a really uh, interesting and promising beginning of a collaboration with Douglas Pipes who scored Monster House and he had scored The Lark too. Uh, so we started working together right when I got into film school. He was writing a really beautiful um, and interesting and unusual score for City of Ember. And the, uh, the, the legal team that took over the ownership of the film just totally did away with it and, um, and uh, had a sort of action movie score recorded in a couple of weeks. And it was really tough to, tough to handle. Yeah, I can imagine, because by the sounds of things, that score would have sat so well next to the visuals, because it's, it's mm. got that, you're like, you know, just, very surreal in parts, but very well realized. I mean, at times, like it has this delicatessen vibe, Jean Pierre Genot's like yeah, yeah, yeah. vibe to it. Which, uh, and that, yeah, I mean, Genet and Caro's work was pretty uh, important for me in, in coming of, you know, cutting my teeth as a, as a, as a film fan and a film budding filmmaker, um, because I loved the idea of seeing something that felt so illustrative and expressive put on screen. Um, I, you know, I also had very close to my uh, to my heart was uh, the work of Terry Gilliam, which yeah. was a huge, huge inspiration for me growing up. I actually had the privilege. Oh, it's your neighbor, too. Do you ever yes. see him walking around? Yeah. So this is oh, I don't know if I should say this. So uh, this yeah. is a long time ago. Um, but I heard that he lived around here and me and one of my friends, a writer friend of mine, we were just walking through the village. And Terry Gilliam gets off a bus. And I'm like, Terry Gilliam getting off a bus? And again, not proud, but I was like, I wonder where he lives. So we followed him home. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> just like, just to see where he lives. And yeah, he does live just down the road from me. Um, so funny. Yeah, sort of following a film, like one of your favorite film directors home, and you suddenly go, is this stalking? Are we, this is, <laughs> where I, is I, the line? <laughs> yeah. I've read about this, but yeah. And no, I know. I, I get that. I, I guess, but to try not to like, you know, obviously it was a painful experience, but I guess to put a positive spin on it, like you've got an education in that side of how things can happen. And, you know, at yeah. least, you know, if it was to ever sort of rear its head in the future, you are, you now have the arsenal to deal with that. I, I'm, I'm definitely protected, um, uh, at least uh, uh, in terms of the choices that I make, uh, the, the, the people I, you know, uh, I, when I start making something, I look every person who's giving me money in the eye and make sure that we're making the same, we're after the same sort of end product. 
the, the, the story that I uh, deliver to screen in a theater or cinema is exactly the same one that they think I'm going to be delivering when they write that check. Mm. Uh, because that, that disconnect, it feels to me like with City of Ember, there was a too late in the process of understanding that, wait a minute, we're making a post-apocalyptic underground city children's film. And I think that, 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 <laughs> that for whatever reason, somebody thought that was not a commercial prospect. <laughs> Too late, too late in the process. But you asked me earlier about Monster House and, and the, the journey from the Lark to Monster House and what a dream that was. In some ways, this is the like come down to reality moment of like, you know, you're, um, you're gonna have to struggle just like everybody else. Mm. And, um, and the, the, uh, it, it, that's a very privileged struggle because I'm still talking about directing a film that is being screened in at least a handful of theaters around the world. But, but for, in terms of the, the contrast from making Monster House, being nominated for an Oscar for it and feeling like I was totally flying high, that experience was a, did a great job of bringing me down to earth. Um, and uh, and the, the next few years were really difficult. I, I, I had to like really reappraise how I was going to be pursuing the films that I was interested in telling and what stories I'd be choosing to tell. And it actually, there were good parts of it, like that one of them was that I um, realized that I would have to start writing in earnest, not just using, um, you know, uh, relying on other screenwriters to communicate my story ideas and dialogue ideas and scenes in, onto the screen. And, and that was a really healthy process. I, I hadn't had confidence uh, in that part of myself until after the, uh, the tragedy of City of Ember. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really positive. Yeah. And well, I, just one thing I, I will I will say like I'd be interested because from watching all your films like I mean even City of Ember we're just talking about there are moments that are really infused with horror like mm. like I mean it's it's a spoiler but I think we can do it like Bill Murray's mm. demise in City of Ember is properly nasty and it's like it's tiny little details it's the fact that he locks the door. So you're not even giving him that moment to escape back out the door. You're like, oh, I could just fling it open and escape the star-nosed mole, the giant star-nosed mole. Do you think in the future, you might find yourself directing a full-on R-rated, like, horror, horror? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I, I, I'm writing one now um, with, a, um, with a, a collaborator who, um, I've I've been a fan of for a long time, um, and it's a proper. I mean, I, I don't even know if it would qualify for an R. It's it's really it's really rough. I have to. I find myself having to take breaks to write other things because it's really dark. It's, <laughs> it's, it's it might it might be one of the most upsetting things I've ever read, and it's weird because I'm writing it. Um, and so, so the answer is yes, but I have to kind of psych myself into it. Like, I don't think I would be looking to make that right now. I think what I'm writing is something that hopefully I'm going to want to put into production in like a couple of years when things are a little bit more cheerful in the world. <laughs> yeah. If that ever happens, yeah. does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my hunger for putting um, the depths of the human condition on the screen right now are probably like fairly low, mm -hmm. but I, I know that it's a big part of me, that darkness, whatever it is, is an engine for me of storytelling. It's always been in the stuff that I've written. Um, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, actually Zemeckis, communicated something to me so beautifully once and I, I, I hold on to it like a like a feather. Um, it, it's it's this idea that 
uh, it's something he learned actually when he was at USC film school is like that there are only a few feelings you can communicate with an audience um, uh, in a in a in a cinema. Um, uh, you can make them feel um, uh, that something's funny, and that's a natural thing that they can feel and share with each other. You can make them feel um, uh, not love but longing so uh so so the idea of longing is is a, is a tangible thing that you can communicate and fear and that's it so th those are the three primary tools that you can communicate to an audience so um so i i've always held on to this idea that it's it's one of the most visceral tools we have at, at our disposal as storytellers um, and that it's, um, it, I don't know, it's, it, I, I think it's like a primary driver for why I'm interested in making movies mm -hmm. and almost everything that I do, I don't think there is anything that I've ever done that is devoid of the basic engine of it. Like, I mean, I think I, we'll have to talk after you see a boy called Christmas because, <laughs> um, but I, I know that there is, you know, there, there is tone in that film. Like I, I, I definitely feel like what I do is on display in that story. So I'm excited for you to see it. I can't wait to see it. It's a boy called Christmas that's coming out at the end of the year before that, you know, a movie you've co-written Ghostbusters Afterlife that's in November, exactly the kind of movie that is hopefully going to get people back to the cinema because cinemas have had like such a rough time. Yeah. And I, I just, can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I can't wait to see, I can't wait to see, a, I was just thinking, I was just thinking yesterday about um, just the idea of a, an audience being in a, in a, in a movie theater together and experiencing something. I know we're all thinking about it because uh, here in England, uh, that's meant to be starting on Monday, this coming Monday. Um, it's just a, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's such an important part of my life, both professionally and as, as a, as an audience member, uh, those experiences really matter. I, I, I can't wait to share them again. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it, that's the thing. I think there are numerous reasons why people go to the cinema, but I think the one that is the most like powerful in terms of why people are going to go back to the cinema, mm. or I hope they are, is the communal experience. You can watch a movie yeah. on your own, and it's a, just a, a, literally it can be like a, like the negative of a film. It's like the opposite experience to what you get when you're sitting alongside people who are experiencing the same thing and having those the same those same emotional responses at the same time to seeing something on a big screen. And I would argue that, that, that that's especially true for things that are scary or have genre leanings because part of the, 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 basic, uh, the, the basic recipe for creating suspense or, or horror is to make an audience feel like they're losing control. Mm. And when you're sitting next to your remote, um, you, you always have control. You can always stop the thing. And and go and get a drink or take a break or check your phone or whatever. When you're in a cinema and you're watching something scary, you've been so swallowed up by the experience that it becomes there's something you know it has its own gravitational pull. I think that that's something that we take for granted in the last year of incredible like democratization of the experience of watching things. There's a lot that's great about watching watching films at home. I really love the the you know, the, the convenience of it, of course, the access to so many more films um, and choosing what you want to watch when you want to watch it. But it, it's giving yourself over to a story that a cinema does better than anything else. Yeah, and it's, it's the immersive thing. And like to use your example mm. of horror, it's like you, you watch a horror movie in your own home, you have the safety net of your familiar surroundings. You watch a horror movie in the dark of an alien environment and it just compounds like the, the mm. fear that you're experiencing and you do genuinely like, I've done it myself. You go back out into the daylight blinking like, oh, okay, I'm safe again because it was in that room, in that strange environment. You put yourself in that this thing happened. Isn't it great? Mm? It's great. It's great. <laughs> and, Gil, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Next time, we'll, we'll take the dogs and we'll do it on the, the heat. <laughs>
I'd, I'd love that. Will you um, uh, will you send me a photo of Simon just so I can see what he what he looks like? Yeah, of course. I absolutely will do that. I'd bring him in right now, but a I don't have a lot of upper body strength, and I can barely pick him up. He's like a small horse. <laughs> uh, I honestly, I think you said oh, you, you had a DNA yeah. test on on yours. I yeah. think. I think if I did a DNA test, people would be like, they say no, whip it. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm serious. I'd love to meet him at some point. So um, let's, uh, when, when things get more open up, let's just meet for a walk in the, in the heave. Um, and let, let, our, let our creatures meet each other. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip to the movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. <laughs> 